growing in God's Word, and learning what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. Imagine living in a world where death constantly surrounds you. A world filled with fear and terror and anxiety and uncertainty and starvation. This is what man has brought down on himself. Death. In this life, it is the final enemy. No one really likes to talk about death, and most of us don't even like to think about it. Imagine a world where death is the norm. Imagine a world where one in three persons is killed. God has been saying through each of these judgments, I'm trying to get your attention. I'm trying to get you to understand that I'm the God who loves you, but I'm also a God of holiness and righteousness, and I will deal with wickedness and with sinfulness. And God has been saying, let's try this again. I'm Rick Freeman. Welcome to this week's Crosswalk. We're right in the middle of our study of the three sets of judgments that are coming upon this earth and upon mankind during the tribulation period. We've looked at the seven seal judgments and the awful destruction and death toll they bring. And we've looked at the first five trumpet judgments that will no doubt bring widespread panic, pain, and terror. The sixth trumpet judgment marks the halfway point of the tribulation period. And if you think the first half was bad, wait till you see the second half. Today we come to the sixth trumpet judgment. What has happened so far has been almost unimaginable. But as we've seen throughout the judgments, they're growing in their intensity. It isn't a pretty picture. But God is in control. And as we'll see today, His judgment is sure. We're glad you've joined us as the Revelation series continues on Crosswalk. Throughout these these judgments here in the middle part of the book of Revelation, through the sealed judgments and through the first five trumpet judgments, we've seen some amazing, incredible things. But we've also seen in there, we've seen lots of destruction and and death, and and we'll talk about some of that this morning. But we have also seen, and I've tried to point out time and time again, God's grace continually being extended to people. God's grace continually going out, and God using these judgments as a tool to try and draw people to Him. During even during that this cataclysmic time of the tribulation period, God is trying to to draw people uh, to Him. In essence, God has been saying through each of these judgments, let's try this again. Let's, let's try it again. I'm, I'm trying to get your attention. I'm trying to get you to understand that I'm the God who loves you, but I'm also a God of holiness and righteousness, and, and I will deal with wickedness and with sinfulness. And God has been saying, let's try this again. Throughout the, the sealed judgments, the seven seal judgments, and now through the five trumpet judgment. Today we come to the sixth trumpet judgment. Most conservative biblical scholars believe that that with the end of the sixth trumpet judgment that we're going to cover today in Revelation chapter 9, with the end of the sixth trumpet judgment, we have come to the halfway point of the tribulation period. The tribulation period is a time period lasting how long? Seven years. The sixth trumpet judgment marks the halfway point of the tribulation period. Three and a half years down, three and a half years to go. And if you think the first half was bad, wait till you see the second half. 
Revelation chapter 9 is where we are this morning, beginning in verse 13. Uh, If you brought your Bible with you, go ahead and turn there if you haven't yet, and you'll find the text on the screen as well. Revelation chapter 9, verse 13 to the end of the chapter. Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, one saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released so that they would kill a third of mankind. The number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. And this is how I saw in the vision the horses and those who sat on them. The riders had breastplates, the color of fire and of hyacinth and of brimstone, and the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions, and out of their mouths proceed fire and smoke and brimstone. A third of mankind was killed by these three plagues, by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which had proceeded out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents and have heads, and with them they do harm. Verse 20, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and of silver and of brass and of stone and of wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their immorality, nor of their thefts. Revelation chapter 9, verse 13 through 21. Again, I, I seem like I say this every week, but this is some, this is some heavy stuff as you get into this. This is, uh, this is, there's so much imagery in here and so much to, to contemplate and to take in And this passage is no exception. In verse 13, it says, Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the altar, which is before God. The the sixth angel, if if you've been with us, you know that the trumpets, each trumpet is held by an angel. Seven angels have been called forth. Each of these angels are given a trumpet, and in succession as they're commanded, they blow their trumpet, and with the blowing of the trumpet comes the corresponding judgment. In the, with the coming of the sixth angel and the sixth trumpet, as he gets ready to blow his trumpet, he hears this command, he hears this voice, the text says, from the, from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. Now, this is the same golden altar that is mentioned in chapter 8 and verse 3. It was mentioned in chapter 8 and verse 3, and it's mentioned again in chap- here in chapter 9 and verse 13. This golden altar. It, it strikes me as there must be some significance to this fact that the, that the golden altar that was, that was within the, the temple and the tabernacle, that this golden altar is mentioned so prominently twice in relation to the judgment of God. There must be some reason why God keeps mentioning this golden altar. The golden altar was, uh, 
as you can see, there's a, a picture, a depiction of exactly what it would look like. The golden altar was the place where it was also referred to sometimes as the altar of incense. You may remember me talking about that when we were in chapter 8. The altar of incense. And it was the place where the sweet-smelling incense was, was placed on it. They would take coals from, from, the, from the altar of, of sacrifice. And they would, they would put those coals in there. And then they would, they would burn this incense. And this sweet-smelling aroma, uh, described as a sweet-smelling aroma, the smoke would rise up. And it would, it would symbolize, you remember me saying this in chapter 8, if you're with us, it would symbolize the prayers of God's people going up before him. And so this is twice now that in, in regards to his judgment, there's a connection between the prayers of God's people rising up and God judging people. And, and it says to me again this importance that, that our prayers matter, and particularly in the context of these prayers for God's righteousness and for God's judgment and for God's uh, kingdom to be established. The golden altar sat uh, inside the holy place and just outside the door of the holy of holies. Let's give you an idea. Uh, you had, this was the tabernacle. Remember, the tabernacle was sort of a portable temple that the Jews built while they were wandering around the wilderness for 40 years. They later built a more permanent structure. Solomon did build a temple. It was later destroyed by the Babylonians and rebuilt and all that stuff, but, but it was more of a permanent building. But while they were in the wilderness, they built this, this tabernacle, and it, was very, and it was same layout as in the temple. You had the brazen altar where the sacrifices were made, the laver where the, the priests would, would wash their hands, and, and you would go into the holy place, and inside of the holy place, along with the candlestick and the showbread, inside the, the holy place was the golden altar. It sat right here. And the golden altar sat right in front of the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. And if you're not familiar with this, remember, you had the, the gate of courts out here where people could come and, and could mingle. And you had the outer court where, where you know, Jewish men could come in. But into the holy place, only, only the priests could enter into there. Only those who were serving as priests and it was their time to serve, they could go in there. And into the holy of holies, the place that symbolized and, and, and God's presence with his people, into the holy of holies, only the high priest could go. And he could only go one time a year, just one day out of the year. The Jews call it Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, where he would, where he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. And it would symbolize that, he was, that they were offering up sacrifice uh, for the atonement of the people's sins. Right outside of that door sat the golden altar. And the smoke would rise up and it, w- and it would symbolize the prayers of God's people going up before God. And, and John seems to be going out of his way to tell, it, to tell us this is a golden altar. I didn't mention it to y'all, but in, in the original text, there's a triple use of the article in there. So that it, that it liter, literally leads the altar, the golden, the one before, and in, in 8.3 it says the one before the throne, and in 9.13 it says the one before God. So there seems to be some importance to us understanding that our prayers are used by God. Now, we can, we can use that generically and say, never forget, never think that your prayers are wasted. We understand there, there are stipulations about our prayers and living in, in, in uh, right standing with God and living rightly with our family and, all, and, and how our prayers are heard before God and, and what our prayers should be about and, and all that sort of thing. But never think that those prayers that are lifted up to God are wasted. And, and in, in relation to the judgment of God, God's people who have through the centuries said, oh God, I long for the day when your righteous rule would be upon the earth. All of us have felt that way at times. All of us have thought 
when we hear of some horrific crime that is committed or some injustice that's done by some society or some government or whatever. And we thought, man, I, oh, I just want God to, uh, I want God to bring justice and judgment and his righteous reign. And in, in Revelation chapter 9, God is in the process of bringing his righteous rule to the earth. And so in essence, he's saying, I'm answering those prayers. I'm bringing judgment. I'm bringing my kingdom. I'm bringing my rule upon the earth. Here it comes. Get ready for it. So it says in verse 14, one saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. These four angels. It's pretty clear, almost everybody agrees on this, that these four angels are in fact bad or fallen angels. In other words, they are, they are demons. Angels, messengers of God, that, those, that group that, that sided with Lucifer and rebelled against God, they fell with Lucifer and they became known as demons at that point. These have to be demons and not good angels because good angels aren't bound. Good angels aren't imprisoned as these clearly seem to be. Um, I, I have no reason, I have no good reason to take this as anything but a literal reference to the literal river Euphrates when it says these that are bound at the river Euphrates. I, I, I really can't think of any good reason to try and spiritualize that. I, I think it means the literal river Euphrates. It's almost 1,800 miles long. And somewhere in the spiritual realm of that part of the world, these four demonic angels are being withheld. We looked at some last week who are being held back. God's holding them back by his grace. Again, we talked about the fact that how much the demonic host must hate us. They're being held back. Somewhere in that area of the world where the river Euphrates is, these four angels in a spiritual realm are being held back. Now, by spiritual realm, are you saying we can't see it? No, at this time, for the most part, you can't see it. But it doesn't mean that, it do, that it's not real. Biblically, we know the, the story of, of Elisha and, and his servant when they were surrounded by the enemy. If you've read that story or remember that story from Sunday school or from years ago, they're surrounded by the enemy and the, and the servant is freaking out and, whoa, what are we going to do? What's going to happen? And, and the prophet of God prays and says, oh, God, open his eyes that he could see. And, and suddenly his eyes were open in the sense that he could see into the spiritual realm and he sees around him this great host of, of this army of God of angels and chariots of fire all around them. Somewhere in that part of the world, these four creatures, these four demonic angels are being held back. And the text says, the four angels who had been prepared, watch this, for the hour and day and month and year. Let me tell you what that means. That means that never forget God's in charge. God's in control of this whole thing. That's what it's saying, that in God's sovereignty and God's timing, he is holding them back and they've been held back and they are being held back until that time when God in his sovereignty has decreed that these events will take place. They were released so that they would kill a third of mankind. Now remember, this is in addition to the one-fourth of the earth's population that's already been killed in the seal judgments. If, if those events, and if you're here, I'm, I'm repeating myself, but if those events took place at 
with today's population in place, that means roughly 1.7 billion people killed during the sealed judgments. And we, we compared that number to some other numbers. You might want to go back and listen online if, if, you, if you weren't here for that. 1.7 billion people. Of those that are left, remember there are just a shade under 7 billion people on this earth. Of those that are left, another one-third of them will be killed. Now, that, bring, that should bring the number somewhere to an additional 1.7, 1.8 billion people who will be killed by these four angels and their army that we'll talk about in a moment. That means roughly three and a half billion people or half of the world's population will be killed within the first three and a half years of the tribulation period, the first half of the tribulation period. That is a number that is, is beyond comprehension, ladies and gentlemen. Imagine living in a world where death constantly surrounds you. A, a world filled with fear and terror and anxiety and uncertainty and starvation and war and all of those things that go, this is what, and we've talked about this, this is what man has brought down on himself when he decided he didn't really need God in his world or in his life. Three and a half billion people. One, this, this latest group, one third of the earth's population that's still alive. What follows then in verses 16 through 19, is a description of the army that these angels have with them to accomplish the killing of these one-third of the earth's population. What follows is this description of them. And the first thing John tells us is that the number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million. Now, some people have... uh, have tried to say that's a, that's a symbol. symbol. That, that's a, they've tried to spiritualize it. That it's not 200 million people because the number is just too great to be an actual literal number. I, I'm of the belief that it is a literal number. I think this army is an army of 200 million. One of the reasons I think that is because when John, notice that John says, if you're looking at it, if you're, if you're looking at verse 16, it says, the number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million. And then look, let's see what he adds. I heard the number of them. It's like John anticipates that when, 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 when we hear that number, 200 million, we're going to go, what? And John says, it, it, to me, I, I, it's like John saying, I'm telling you, I heard the number. I know it sounds hard to believe, but I heard the number. 200 million in this army. So the question is, who is this army? That's the next question to deal with. Among conservative scholarships, there are two schools of thought. The first is that this is a 200 million army of men, actual people. Those, uh, that position, that belief um, that, that it re- refers to actual men for almost 2,000 years, that, that interpretation was, was laughed at because there had never been an army of 200 million people and, and nobody could even comprehend an army of 200 million people. Today, we know that China alone can field an army of 200 million men. So that literal number being men is possible. Those who hold to that position, by the way, 
um, believe that the description that John gives of the riders and the horses, those who hold to the position that this is men, believe that that's a description of some type of modern military weapon that John is trying to describe. That he's, remember, he's never seen this before. Maybe a, a fighter jet or a helicopter or a tank or something that John sees when he's describing these horses and, and this, this death that's, that's in, their, in their mouths and in their tails and they look like lions. That in this case, John's looking at some type of modern piece of military equipment and uh, that's what he is describing. I want to say that that interpretation is completely possible. The other position held by conservative scholarship is that the 200 million is a 200 million army of demons or fallen angels. And while neither position can be proven conclusively, I lean toward this position. I personally lean towards the idea that it is uh, demons that we're talking about. For one thing, and here's why. For one thing, we've just seen an army of similar description in the chapter before who came up out of the pit of the abyss. You remember I referred to them last week as the horde from hell that came up out of the, the pit and they were, they were allowed to torture and torment mankind for five months, but they weren't allowed to kill. And remember I've said all along that the judgments are increasing in their intensity and in their severity. So it makes sense to me that the very next judgment to come out that allows them to kill, if it was, if it was a demonic plague before, then it would just seems like it would be a natural thing for it to be a demonic plague again. The other reason that tends to make me think that we're talking about an army of 200 million demons is that the army just appears. There's no, there's no reference to a gathering of an army or an influence of nations. or anything. It's just like they're just there. With the mention of the four angels, right beside them is the mention of this army. And to me, again, that speaks of the fact that as these four demonic leaders of this army are, are called up out of the abyss. They just bring in their army with them. Now, let me stop right here and say this. Throughout this study, especially in these judgments that we've looked at, there have been a number of times when I've mentioned to you that there can be more than one interpretation to a text. And that's certainly true of the book of Revelation. It's filled with imagery and it has a good bit of symbolism in it. It has, it has descriptions of things that John has never seen before. And several times throughout this study, I've said to you, we can't know for sure what this interpretation is or there's more than one uh, possible interpretation to this text. This text is a prime example. We cannot say with absolute certainty whether it's an army of 200 million men or whether it's an army of 200 million demons. But this is what I want to say. If God thought it essential for us to know who this army was, then he would have clearly told us that. He would have clearly made sure that we understood, oh, it's men, okay, and here's why we need to know that. Or it's demons, and here's why we need to know that. If God had thought it essential for us to know that, I can assure you he would have made it clear to us. But what God has determined is essential, he has made clear, and that is this. There will be a 200 million army that will slaughter one-third of the earth's population. That's what you and I need to know even now today because that ought to be some type of motivation in my life to say, oh my goodness, surely, surely there's somebody I can tell about this because if I'm right about what this text says and if we are near the end, that means that somebody you and I know, a family member, a loved one, a neighbor, a friend, a coworker, somebody you and I know will experience this and far greater. 
And so what God has deemed essential for us to know, he has made clear to us to know. And in this case, we need to know that there is a 200 million army coming that's going to do this, this destruction and this death to a third of the earth's population. And he goes on with the description there of them. In, in reading this description and reading the events that, that transpire, it can, it can be easy for us to think, and I've said this before, I know, but it can be easy for us to think, man, that, that, that seems so hard and so, so uh, difficult to, to accept all this death and carnage and everything that's going on. I, I want to I make sure that you understand, and, and you probably already do, but, but I'd just like to remind you that please don't think in any way that this brings God pleasure to do what is transpiring here. Please don't think in some way that God's saying, yeah, I'm getting them now. Yeah, I'm getting even with them for all their, their wickedness and they're turning away from me. Boy, I'm, I, please don't think, don't get that picture of God in your mind. Through the prophet Ezekiel, um, God writes this and he says, say to them, and he was having Ezekiel and he was speaking specifically in context of the nation of Israel, but it would apply to all of those who rebel against God. Say to them, as I live, Listen to, the, listen to what God's saying. As I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? Do you hear God, this God of, of infinite power and majesty and omnipotence and omniscience saying, turn back. This brings God no pleasure. But establish his righteous rule, he will do. He has declared that righteousness will reign on his creation. And God is in the process of purging the world of those who reject him and will have nothing to do with him. And the sad reality is, in verse 20 and 21, and the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands. So as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and of silver and of brass and of stone and of wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk, and they did not repent of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their immoralities, nor of their thefts. By the way, the word immorality in the Greek is pornea. It refers pretty specifically to sexual sin. It can refer to immorality in general, but, but to sexual sin. And this is no exhaustive list of sins. But within it, within, within the things that are mentioned and within the context of what God says, you, you could, it, just, it just seems almost too hard to believe. You mean after all of that, they still, wouldn't, they still wouldn't turn to God? No, they still wouldn't turn. And they continued in their rebellion, continued in their sinfulness. I, uh, I'm not much of a radio talk, talk guy. I don't listen to talk radio a whole lot. My, Cindy's a talk show junkie. She, she likes to listen to talk radio. I don't listen to it too much. But the other day we were taking the kids home and uh, talk radio was on. And uh, the, the, uh, the talk show guy was talking to this person that had called in. And apparently he was kind of a regular call in. It sounded like that they'd talked before. And, 
Um, I think they had different views and all that stuff, but he was a, a regular call-in guy. And in the course of their conversations, they're just kind of talking around and stuff. This guy says he's, he's uh, 30 years old and he's, he's uh, dating a woman who's 45. And then they're going back and forth about this cougar thing and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And then the, the, the host asks him if he's, if he's living with the, the, this, this woman that he's dating. And he, he's, he's kind of reluctant, quite honestly, he was kind of reluctant to say it, uh, but he says, yes, yes, he's, he's living with her. And, um, and when, he, when, he was, when the guy asked him about that, he says, you know, how do you justify that, you know, with, with, uh, with it? Because here's what the guy had said when, it, when he said, yes, he's, but this, this is the quote, this is the phrase he used, I'm a deeply committed Christian. That's what the, the guy said. And he said, well, well how, do you, how do you jive those, those two? And, and the guy used this classic response. Uh, he says, well, he says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Classic response. Quoting Jesus. Everybody knows that verse. Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. In other words, what, what he was saying was, well, all of us are sinners. None of us are perfect. Therefore, none of us have a right to say whether anybody else's choices are sinful or not. The problem is there is one who is perfect. He's God. And he has determined no matter what it is. And listen, I'm not picking on that guy. I'm just, I'm just, God, I'm just saying God's just saying, don't think there aren't expectations on your life. Don't think that, 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 I, that, that I have... That I have a disdain, I have this, this, this thing about sin that I, I, will, I just can't allow to go on in your lives and, and think that everything's okay. I have plans for you, I have great things for you, but, but, but you've got to come up under obedience to me and being obedient in every area of your life. And they wouldn't do it. They wouldn't repent, they wouldn't say, you know what? Like the guy on the radio, if the guy, how great it would have been to say, you know what? You're right, it's not God's plan. That's, uh, that's not God's plan. But God is determined. I just want to say, wherever you are today, and, and if you're here person and, and this, you, you never made a decision on this God thing, this Jesus thing, or, or whatever else, and God's still saying, even now, today, even before all this, I'm, I'm trying to draw you unto myself. I'm trying to show you that I have a plan for your life that's better than what you can come up with on your own. I sent my son to pay for your sins if you would surrender your life to me. And to those of us who, who have already come to that place where we've given our life to Jesus Christ and we're trying to be a, a follower, a fully devoted follower of him as best we can, he's saying to us, remember, I've got an expectation on your life of holiness, not perfection, but that we would live a life that would, that, that would be different from those around us in, in our conduct. And that we would have an impact on, on those around us. Because here's the question. If, if all of this is going to transpire, and worse, because hell, eternity is beyond this, ladies and gentlemen. If all of this is going to transpire, then who's going to warn them? At what point? Who is going to say, and I know I harp on this a lot, but I, who's going to warn them? Who's going to, as I often say, give a rip enough to say something? That same prophet, Ezekiel in chapter 3, God is speaking to him about warning the wicked. And he, and he says, when I say to the wicked, and listen, when you read that word wicked, don't, don't think in your mind, okay, uh, Charles Manson, um, you know, Hitler, 
Yes, they, they were wickedness personified, but, but he's saying anyone that has gone a different direction than God. When I say to the wicked, you will surely die, and you, Ezekiel, do not warn him or speak out to warn the wicked from his wicked way that he may live, well, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Those are sobering words. Yet if you have warned the wicked and he does not turn from his wickedness or, or from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered yourself. You've, you've delivered yourself from the guilt, from the blood guilt of not speaking up and saying, listen, I, I, I've got to share this with you. I, I've got to tell you what Jesus has done in my life. This is not a pretty picture and much, nothing really in these judgments is. And, and we've got to wait till we get towards the end to where it really starts getting, getting good for us. But in the meantime... Why does God put this in here? If it's not taking place in our lives, I'm, I, if I'm right about Scripture, I'm missing this anyway. I'm taken out of here. Why does God want us to know this now? Because somebody's got to warn them. Somebody's got to warn the wicked, lest they perish in their sinfulness. Half the world's population wiped out in the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. One can only imagine what it will be like for those living during that time. Through these judgments, we've seen God using them to draw people to Him. But as we saw today, even after the death of so many, people's hearts were still hard and they refused to come to God. Our God is a holy God and He doesn't take sin lightly. As followers of Jesus, we should live our lives in such a way that would point people to the God of justice who is still extending His grace and mercy to any who would come to Him. We're glad you joined us for this week's message on Crosswalk. Each week, Pastor Clay opens the Bible and brings out its exciting and practical truths to apply to our lives. Cross Culture Church is a new church in North Raleigh, but instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice realness. We meet Sundays at 1030 at Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. And we welcome anyone looking for a place to learn about God's plan for their life. At Cross Culture Church, we experience the liberating, satisfying, life-changing power of the cross. And it's our desire to bring that power to a culture in need of freedom, hope, and joy. We hope you'll come join us on a Sunday morning. We'll save a seat for you. Culture Church, a new church for people like you. Learn more about us, who we are, what we're about, what we do, and what we believe. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org. Cross Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross.